The edition is sponsored by Charles Stanley, one of the UK's leading wealth managers, providing bespoke investment management and financial advice. Find out more at charles-stanley.co.uk. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. The government has adopted a test, track and trace approach to coronavirus. But why didn't it do this before? I speak to James Forsyth and Adrian Waldridge. Also on the podcast, we take a look at how the coronavirus is a stress test for Putin and last, exactly what it's done to the wedding industry. First up, James Forsyth writes in his cover piece this week that the government is going South Korea on the coronavirus. James joins me now, together with Adrian Waldridge, the budget columnist for The Economist. So James, can you explain the government's new approach to coronavirus? Their aim is to to drive the R number, the kind of reproductive rate of the virus, down as low as they can, and then to move to a test, track and trace model, uh, which has been so successful in South Korea in terms of containing the virus. I think this this begs the, the obvious question, why wasn't this the approach from the off? And when you speak to people in government, it becomes quite clear it's because the state wasn't capable of doing this initially. The UK had this plan for dealing with pandemics, but it was a plan for dealing with plan- pandemic flu, not a SARS-style virus like COVID-19. I think this is, is akin to the kind of fall of Singapore in 1942, when the British were convinced that Singapore was almost impregnable because there were these huge guns mounted in the harbour that could basically blow any ship coming towards it out of the water. And then the Japanese came through the jungle and took Singapore that way. And nobody had expected that. And I think this is the problem is you had a whole series of state planning about how to respond to a pandemic that was all based on the assumption it was flu. And when it turned out to to be a, a SARS-style virus, the UK has been caught very badly on the hop. Adrian, your book, The Fourth Revolution, compares Asian governments to Western ones and look at this reinvention of the nation-state. You said back then that Western states risk being left behind. Do you see coronavirus as emblematic of that trend? Well, broadly, I do. I think that, you know, for the last few hundred years, really since about 1600, the West has pulled ahead of Asia and the East in terms of its state capacity, either because it's been more innovative than the Chinese who kept doing the same thing over and over and over again, or just because it's much, it, it's, it's much better at building bureaucracies or at least relevant bureaucracies. The Chinese bureaucracy was an extremely good bureaucracy. It just became incre- increasingly uh, irrelevant. And I see here that there may be a sort of historical turning point in that you no longer assume that the West is best. There have been some Western countries that have done well, obviously Germany being a a primary example of that. But if you're looking around the world for the examples of best practice, you're just as likely or probably more likely to find them in Asia. Um, Obviously, South Korea, Singapore, although that's had a a bit of a relapse. Vietnam has done very well. China has brought it under control, having unleashed it on the world. So I think this is a sort of, this is a telling, it's almost a turning point in world history because we're no longer obviously number one at state building, at, at, at state action. I think that's, that should be a big wake-up call to Westerners. And the particular worry, obviously, is the, the poor performance of the United States, both at home, 
and abroad. The United States is not an example to the world, nor has it rallied the world to dealing with this, this problem. So this is potentially a big shift in global power, I think. James mentions there the specific reason that we were preparing for a flu pandemic rather than a coronavirus pandemic as why we, our government's response has been slower than some others. But Adrian, do you think there's been an inherent weakness in learning from other states, uh, especially in this instance, the Asian states that got hit by coronavirus first? Absolutely. I think there's a sort of basic assumption that when we're looking for lessons to learn, that um, we don't look abroad, or if we do look abroad, we look to European countries. And the big lesson from this is Britain in particular didn't look enough abroad and certainly didn't look to to the Far East, certainly didn't look to South Korea or Japan or even China. Um, And I remember the time when we were sort of sitting there thinking, God, what a terrible thing is going on in China, aren't they all crazy locking everybody down? Or then when at the first of it, our initial reaction was to start sort of looking at our own history at the Blitz, at the Blitz spirit and all of that sort of thing. But at no point did anybody sit down and say, let's learn from the, the lessons from the countries that have dealt with, with, with SARS. Now we're having a, a big moment here in which I think we're beginning to realise how, how advanced uh, and how good at government big chunks of the Asian world have, have become and also how bad, bad we are. Our instinctive reaction, I think, you know, historically, since, since at least the Second World War, has been to look at America as a model. And I don't think anybody's going to look at America for, for a, more, a model of this. So it's important. Also, I think we're going to begin to sort of start rethinking a lot of the management assumptions that have underlain our, our public sector. You know, basically, we've tried to have a, not to have too much spare capacity built into the NHS. We've regarded spare capacity as a sign of of weakness of failure you know as, as redundancy and i think that was that was that was a mistake and as james says in his in, in his excellent piece you know one of the things that differentiated britain from germany here is that germany hasn't been so so stringent or so anti having spare capacity we just didn't have the hospital beds to move people in if we if, had we chosen to i think one of the things that is depressing about the debate in the west about responding to coronavirus is You just have people arguing about the size of a state, not the effectiveness of the state. As Adrian says, the the point is how well run countries like South Korea and Singapore are. And I think the danger is that, as Jeremy Corbyn said, oh, you know, I've been vindicated by (laughs) this crisis. And that everyone just argues that, you know, that hiring huge numbers of more public health professionals will be the answer to, to this problem. It's not the answer to this problem. The answer to this problem is is a much better public health infrastructure that takes advantages of modern data and all of those kind of things. I mean, it's, it's a small point, but it is very telling. Every day when they announce the number of deaths in the UK, when you actually look at the figure, it is striking how many of them came from several weeks ago. But the data has only just filtered its way up to the top of the system. And I think this has been a real problem. You, know, you talk to everyone in government involved in formulating policy and they admit that they have basically been flying blind throughout this crisis because they simply haven't had the data and the information that they have needed to make decisions, which stands in stark contrast to their counterparts in South Korea who have had every you know had the knowledge that they needed and that has enabled them to avoid a lockdown it's enabled them to take far more targeted localized 
responses than the UK has, where we've had to go for this kind of sledgehammer option of a national lockdown, which is obviously creating kind of huge and possibly irreparable economic damage. The British obsession with the size of the state, particularly with Corbyn there, is, is very detrimental. And Corbyn's first reaction is not only this proves that we need a big state, but his reaction is also it proves that we must um, celebrate, praise and also give more resources to the various people who are running the National Health Service. Obviously, they're doing wonderful things at a wonderful time, but it's not just enough to take the existing structures and put money into it or take the existing workers and and, and give them a pay rise or give them more resources without also thinking about whether those structures are uh, continue to be relevant or continue to be the best possible structures. So, you know, the worst possible response in some ways is to take the existing state and just Mm. blow it up and make it a bit bigger. You have to combine giving the state more resources, which obviously we need to do in this crisis, with rethinking its basic structures. And some of those questions that we need to be asking about what we're doing are really quite, quite difficult questions, because the, the National Health Service, for all its, its enormous virtues, as, as James says, has been is very bad at data, although it's got better in the last few years in some ways, because that was one of Hancock's great in, in, enthusiasms. But by all means, expand the state, uh, but modernise it, reform it, redirect it, it's too important to be left just to the producers or just to bloviators like Corbett. Mm. Adrian, James mentioned the idea of national self-sufficiency on medical issues in his piece. What do you make of that idea? Do you think we do need to have our own see vaccine production, for example, as part of national security? I think this is absolutely an essential question. And I think there is a very good case for going back to being more self-sufficient for us and other countries that... You know, you cannot allow the lives of your citizens to depend on supply chains that might either break down or prove to be too fragile to deliver things in time. And so we do need to do that with vaccines, if we get one, with PPE, with all sorts of medical supplies. And one one of the many reasons why Germany has done better than us is it just had a big bigger domestic pharmaceutical industry, which could serve its domestic market quicker. And I think one of the most important things that needs to be solved Uh, or addressed in this current era is conceding just how much you need to concede to people who say you need to have more production at home without going too far. So by by all means, let's be self-sufficient in a certain amount of medical stuff. By all means, let's even be a bit more self-sufficient in certain, certain areas of food supplies. But don't let that explode to the idea that we need to be manufacturing, you you know, cotton buds in Britain or things like that. And, and it's very easy for a, a very sensible insight to uh, be taken out of all proportion. One of the classic examples of this in the United States after the First World War was something called the Jones Act, which perhaps legitimately at the time said we must, we must be making all of our sh- domestic ships at home, but now I think continues to, 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 to be on, on the statute books today. I think John McCain tried to try to remove it and failed because there are just so many vested interests who pushed this this initially sensible things into all sorts of directions and refused to let it up. So I think the fight, as it were, it's not just a fight between globalizers and nationalists. It's a fight, as it were, between sensible globalizers who concede that you need to have certain things produced domestically mm. and and um well, people who want to take this into a direction of, of autarky, I suppose I'd call it. 
And James, in pre-coronavirus era, we heard a lot about levelling up and the levelling up agenda of this government. Is this a way in which levelling up agenda can be reconciled with coronavirus and the lessons learned from there? I think one of the most interesting strategic decisions that the government has taken is that in its kind of post-coronavirus reconstruction job on the economy, it doesn't want to return to the status quo ante. Instead, it wants to take what was already a very large and ambitious agenda and kind of roll it all into one. So the the post-coronavirus economic approach is going to take account of Brexit, levelling up, net zero, and all that. I think one of the things that you will see is this desire to boost domestic manufacturing, to be able to, for example, produce vaccines in the UK, which I think is sensible. That, the revival of that kind of manufacturing, obviously some of that is going to end up happening in those former industrial seats that the Tories won for the first time at the last election. I think one of the things that this crisis has highlighted is that it's not it's not just Trump by any stretch of the imagination. Pretty much every, uh, or, or China, pretty much every nation state has responded to this crisis by putting the needs of its own citizens first. And so therefore, if there was a domestic manufacturer of PPE or whatever, they were not allowed to export that until the government was satisfied that domestic demand had been met. And I think that reality is going to inform how people do things. Now, I think on Adrian's point, there are clever ways to do this. You know, someone in government was musing to me the other night that one way you could do this would be to say to firms, you can manufacture where you like, but what you need is, if given a 30-day warning, you need to be able to produce 90% of what, 75% of what you normally produce in the UK. So, for example, you know, if you had another public health emergency in China and it was clear that there was another one of these viruses on the march, but the British state could, could kind of pull a cord and manufacturers would have to have to activate their kind of contingency plan. And that would be a way of allowing you to, in good times, to maintain the benefits of current global supply chains and all the efficiencies that that create, but also enabling you to have something to fall back on when you end up in a situation like this. And and I think it is worth reflecting that, you know, this is the third of these coronaviruses that, that has got out in just in this century so far. People used to talk about pandemics as kind of being in a kind of once in a generation of it's quite clear that something has changed in this because perhaps because the world is so much more interconnected there are going to be more of these things and so the state needs a sensible insurance policy to avoid getting dragged into the situation that we are currently now in where we have a horribly high death toll and and an alarmingly large amount of economic damage. Adrian and James thank you very much. And next, infections are rising fast in Russia, and with the oil market crash, Owen Matthews writes in this week's magazine that this is a double stress test for the Putin regime. Owen joins me now together with Isabel Koshudian, the Moscow-based correspondent for the Washington Post. So Owen, can you tell us about this double stress test? Well, historically, when oil is up, Russia is up. When oil is down, Russia is down and worse than down because the Soviet Union collapsed precisely because of a collapse in the oil price. So what the Putin regime faces right now is not only a collapse in the oil price, but a collapse in the real economy. 
So the question is, really, is history going to repeat itself? And is Russia going to be as doomed by long-term low energy prices and high unemployment as Mikhail Gorbachev was in the late 1980s, when the collapse of the Soviet economy heralded the collapse of the regime? That's really the stress test that Putin has faced and it's, is facing right now. And it's the most serious test of his governance and of his model of governance that he's faced in two decades. But of course, it also comes at a time of the coronavirus pandemic. Well, exactly. Putin had already kind of planned to have an oil war, an oil price war with Saudi Arabia when the coronavirus came along and actually turned his sort of almost voluntary, deliberate oil price war into a real crisis because it crashed the oil price far below anything that uh, Putin or uh, the Saudis expected and has added an extra element of complete collapse of uh, 42% of the economy that is, that is small and, and medium businesses. So Putin is facing more or less the same economic stresses as every other developed economy, with the added problem that, unlike most Western economies, Putin can't borrow money or print money. He's just down to his own resources. And the question is whether the Russian state is strong enough or wealthy enough or prudent enough to weather that storm. Just quickly, Owen, when you say he can't print or borrow his own money, can you explain why? Because as a result of sanctions in the wake of 2014 annexation of Crimea, almost all major Russian businesses have been barred from access to international financing. Russia's own sovereign debt continues to be trading, but that's obviously predicated on its oil incomes. Mm. And Russia doesn't have a currency uh, that is powerful enough to be uh, or, or is independent enough, like sterling or the euro or the dollar, to actually increase the money supply, so-called quantitative easing, without provoking hyperinflation. And Isabel, what is it like in Moscow at the moment? And what has been the Russian government's response to coronavirus so far? Yeah, it's, you know, it kind of started with, I felt like I was living in this, you know, alternate reality where you were seeing so many other parts in the world, you know, starting to shut down, restaurants were closed, you know, my friends in the States were telling me about not being able to buy toilet paper. And Russia you know, just seemed kind of not immune to it, but there wasn't the same kind of number of cases here. But at the same time, I think people were very wary of that, where you started to see some, you know, doctors and other people raising flags about, you know, inflated pneumonia. And it seemed inevitable that I would get here. And now it's almost a couple weeks behind everyone else where, you know, where you see some places maybe starting to plateau where the number of cases are going down you know, Russia is just not even at its peak yet. So the lockdown is pretty strict. And, you know, you're really not supposed to be outside of your apartment unless it's a very specific reason where you're taking out the trash or you're walking a dog. In my neighborhood, there was a pretty famous case of a man, you know, walking his dog was arrested. His name was Jesus, too, which was, you know, amusing. But <laughs> there's all this fear about, oh, you have to download the mobile pass system and use these QR codes or, you know, if you break certain quarantine rules, you know, the facial recognition cameras will catch you. So it does feel a little bit like a police state, a surveillance state. 
And I would say the lockdown's been pretty strict where you see some places you're allowed out for exercise. Here, you're technically not. In Britain, Isabel, uh, the lockdown hasn't been as strict as that, but all the same, public opinion has been overwhelmingly supportive of a lockdown. What does public opinion make of the Russian government's approach? Yeah, I I think the latest polling I saw was that, you know, 50% of people think, you know, the government is doing everything they can. Somewhere around there. I think it's more of the frustration, as kind of Owen was saying, with, you know, small businesses feel like they're not getting the support when maybe they understand why a lockdown has to happen, but they don't feel like they're getting kind of the government assistance to get through it. But I think uh, people are fairly accepting of the actual restrictions. Just kind of the more frustration is the lack of stimulus that you see in other European countries. And Owen, perhaps out of political astuteness, you mentioned that Putin has not really been on the front stage in this. He's not been in the limelight. That's true. He's, he, he's uh, I mean, usually in Russia, you see Putin every day, in every way, in every place. His, his trademark has been for you know, 20 years in power that he's extremely hands-on, he's a very public figure and he's kind of faded from sight. He's, he's, he's addressed the country four times. He's basically left it to the mayor of Moscow and to the prime minister to do the day-to-day, which is tactically maybe smart because it means that they can uh, take the fall in case of a public backlash. But the, the more profound question I think is not so much Putin's tactics, but whether the Putin system is actually capable of being as efficient an authoritarian state as China. Because, of course, in many ways, you know, Putin does model himself over... Russia is a classic state capitalist system. And many of the things that Putin has tried to do, in other words, to try to control the internet, to control civil society, to crack down on dissidents, are the same kind of things that all authoritarian countries do, and which China in particular does very well and very efficiently. So the coronavirus challenge is also a security challenge. How do you shut down a whole nation? How do you enforce that? How do you stamp out any kind of protests? Because there already have been some protests in Vladikavkaz, in the North Caucasus, Last week, there were 10 days ago, there was a, a protest of 2,000 people against unemployment and so on. So the state security apparatus of Russia wants to be like China, but it's just not, in fact, in practice, as powerful or as efficient as China's. So you know, Putin, I think, faces a much more longer-term challenge. I don't really see Russians rebelling against lockdown, but I think coming down the pike, when you have a situation of mass unemployment, you're actually going to see all of the institutions that Putin has been really building up, institutions of repression, really put to the test, because I think there's going to be a sort of major upswell of discontent against the government as people lose their incomes, their jobs and see the economy falling apart, that violates the basic social contract, the unspoken social contract Mm. on which whole Putinism is based. And that is people have surrendered their democracy, their freedom in exchange for security and for the reality or illusion of Russia becoming a great power. And when the economy collapses, then the state is no longer able to uphold its part of that 
unspoken two-decade-old bargain. I suppose you've got a similar bargain going on in China where, you know, because of coronavirus, these issues are brought to the fore. But the Chinese government, in response, has, you know, tried to blame other countries such as America for coronavirus coming about. And there's been a PR drive, a nationalistic, you know, call to action almost. Isabel, do you see a similar situation happening in Russia where there's finger pointing at other places in the world? You know, I think Russia's approach has more been to kind of position itself or, you know, using their state media, kind of paint themselves as, you know, oh, we're, you know, things are under control. And also these countries need our help. You see the aid they sent to the U.S., to Italy, elsewhere, that, you know, Russia is kind of the global leader. And, you know, I don't think they've really gotten into the conspiracy theories. And I think with Russia, it's really criticizing the Western response to the virus and how other countries have handled it, which takes some pressure off of maybe how Russia has handled it. And then also positioning itself as kind of this country that's being humanitarian to others because they have resources. But then that gets undermined when you hear all of these reports from, you know, doctors here from hospitals in various regions where they don't have the PPE or there isn't enough hospital beds. And that's when kind of it backfires, I think, a little bit because it's why did you send all of this stuff to other countries when we're we don't have enough for ourselves? And you have a real problem here with kind of medical professionals, you know, contracting the coronavirus and falling seriously ill. And last, Owen, do you think that any of this will change Putin's approach to the oil wars? We talked about it on the podcast not long ago, although that was in the office before lockdown. Do you think he's going to soften or back down because of this? It's out of his hands. That's the irony is that actually Putin has actually spent many years actually quite prudently since 2014 building up an oil reserve fund in order to survive an oil price crash and was actually welcoming and precipitated an oil price crash just before the coronavirus by increasing production, refusing to uh, stick to an agreement with the Saudis and the rest of OPEC to restrict production. But right now, all of that carefully laid plans have just gone out of the window because suddenly the world global demand for oil has, has crashed and is likely if there's a re- the, the predicted global depression continues then the the oil price is going to is going to remain extremely low and that's a fundamental problem for Russia because the state budget is dependent on it despite years of lip service that they're going to diversify the economy away from fossil fuels it hasn't really happened the states uh, the state is still extremely heavily dependent on on oil income and a poor russia cannot be a strong russia that's the one lesson of the 80s and the 90s is that when the oil price is low then russia is poor and humiliated and there have been dips that putin has survived there was an oil price dip in 2008 there was another one in around 2014 and so far, those were sort of up and down movements which Putin was able to survive. The real question is whether the regime is going to survive long-term fall in its major revenue. I think there's there's uh, there's serious doubts in my mind that, that that Russia is going to be able to maintain its uh, its sort of aggressive posturing and its um, sort of great power pretensions while it actually has a faces a profound economic crisis in the model on which the whole governance of Putin is based, which is higher oil prices. Isabel and Owen, thank you very much. And last, doing a podcast with me isn't exactly how Katie Balls, our deputy political editor, envisaged spending the few days before her wedding. 
Yet that is what she's doing because she is one of a number of COVID brides who've had to postpone their weddings. Katie joins me now together with wedding planner Katrina Otter. So Katie, can you tell us about COVID brides? Yes. So I suppose I should start with my own story, which is I had hoped to get married this Saturday, but I think I'm one of many who who will not be having the wedding they had expected. Well, actually, right now, it isn't possible to get married. I think that will change probably in the coming weeks as there's some form of lockdown easing. But it's very much the case that this idea, I think, that lots of couples spend you know over a year planning for their wedding you have a big wedding perhaps you know 80 plus guests and you know a, a big reception elderly relatives attending international guests flying you know family from other countries coming over just doesn't seem like it's something that's going to be able to happen in the coming months so I've had to move my wedding so it's now next year but in going through all the mechanics of that it's striking how many people are having to do it and how long it could really last in terms of the year and what it eventually means I think in terms of whether next year is just going to be packed for the weddings or we're just going to have to all accept that big white weddings aren't the norm for the time being. I mean Katrina this must be the nightmare situation for you. It, it is, yes it definitely is. It's a nightmare situation for everyone really but I suppose that's in some ways you know that's that's what we're here to do whether that's planning, you know, the the wedding that they dreamt they would have, or it's, you know, thinking of action plans and bringing those together to to help them postpone, really. Is that what you're having to do quite a lot of, postponing and planning for next year, like Katie said? Absolutely. So similar situation to Katie in the fact that I, I as well, had a wedding this weekend at Kew Gardens and have had to postpone, understandably. As a situation, we are looking at all of our weddings up until August so far have been postponed now. So yes, so those those have moved. And then September, October, we very much have plan Bs in place for them, depending on announcements over the coming weeks. And Katie, I suppose that sort of uncertainty is what gives you what you call your competitive advantage in this wedding planning reorganisation. Yes, I mean, clearly there are lots of awful side effects from coronavirus. And I think compared to the wedding one is very light. But ultimately, when it initially happened, clearly, if you've been planning something and you're getting quite close to it, you you do feel very disappointed when everything seems to go. And I think in the early stages, it seemed as though I think my day and the early May dates, and I think probably late April, were just the particularly unlucky ones. So I, I, I had colleagues, as I say in the piece, you know, not saying the, the, wed, the word wedding around me because they're a bit worried <laughs> about how I might react. I think smarter colleagues just gave me glasses of wine as, as a way to get through it. But ultimately, all my friends who were getting married in the summer were quite confident and we were given priority when it came to rebooking things. Ultimately, I think what a lot of brides have is because you have paid large deposits for all your venues and and your church and things like that, it means that you don't really have the option of just cancelling the whole thing. You might if you have wedding insurance, but I think, I mean, I've read that I think about a third of brides might have wedding insurance. It's not actually 
that normal I'm not just saying that to make myself feel a bit better about not getting it (laughs) Um, so so you really need to stick with the venues you have so then it comes to what other dates do they have free and it meant that when I was going around to move it it was because it was so early it meant it was quite easy to just have a pick a few dates and I was quite lucky in the sense everyone was accommodating but I was also lucky in the sense that I now hear horror stories of um, you know friends getting married friends of friends who are looking at these August dates, potentially September, where there's still question marks over it. And they're trying to work out, do you stick with the date you have and just hope things improve? Or do you get nearer to the time and then look at other dates? Because I think the worry is that as time goes on, it's going to get harder and harder to get weekend dates for next year and for example one of wedding apps I was saying that they expect there to be a trend in 2021 of winter weddings which lots of people will choose anyway but also weekday weddings just because of the supply demand issue and I know again small violins but I think brides are not known at the best times for being you know willing to compromise hugely on their day <laughs> and I, I think it's just creating this this pressure for lots of people who had thought it was going to be a, you know a really um monumental summer for them. Katrina, are you having to look at more of those sort of less popular options like winter weddings and weekday weddings? Exactly. So autumn weddings, winter weddings. To be honest though, autumn is my favourite time of the year for a wedding. So it's one of those things that I can encourage my couples quite enthusiastically. But yes, midweek is definitely something that I am seeing more and more and compromises do have to be made because not only are there the postponements, there are also bookings already for 2021. You've got engaged couples coming through as well. And there is that, that pressure to secure suppliers. So there has to be that flexibility. If you want to move your wedding or if you have to move your wedding and you want to take all your suppliers with you, it might be that out of season or midweek is the only option. And Katie, in the meantime, you say that now you've got more time to plan for next year's wedding. Yeah, if you look hard enough, you can always find a silver lining. Um, <laughs> my browser history shows quite a lot of time looking at floral arrangements at the moment. If if you basically make the decision, which I think a lot of people are, and I, I would include myself in it to a degree, though I don't think I am as bridezilla as, as some people, if you make the decision that you want to hold out and delay by a year because you want to have that that big day of all your friends and families and, and that big ceremony, I do think the next year is going to see people working out how they can add finishing touches, which could be quite drastic, because ultimately lots of brides have everything is ready to go. And I think that given that wedding planning is something people quite enjoy, I think it could get quite OTT in the coming year. But I do think there's an interesting question, which is clearly there are so many unknowns with coronavirus and where we're going with it right now. And its effect on weddings is by by no means even in the the top 50. But social distancing, if we are going to have to live with this until there's a vaccine, there is no sense that that will necessarily be in a year's time. So I do wonder if even the 2021 brides are eventually going to have to reconsider how they do things. In New York, they're doing these Zoom weddings. And I think for some people, they just want to get married and I can see the appeal there but I think for other people it's a a celebration of all their friends and family and and they won't let go to doing that in person until it really is that there's no other option. And it might be as well that there's that dual aspect so having the Zoom or having the intimate wedding this year and then next year is the celebration it's the wider celebration so still technically getting married this year 
but then moving it to next year in terms of what they envisaged being the wider celebration with the flowers, with the decor. But from a planning perspective, just kind of picking up your point, not only is there more time to think about the wedding and think about the finer details, there's also the additional work that goes alongside actually moving the wedding. So whether it's resending invitations, whether it's redoing wedding websites, whether it's if you've moved from a a spring wedding and you're moving to a winter wedding, it's completely thinking the flowers, the colour palette, the menu. So there is still a considerable amount of work that does need to be done just to facilitate that move. Well, Katrina, I don't envy you. And Katie, finally, what are you going to do this weekend instead of getting married? Um, So I think it's going to involve some gin. I have some, you know, lighter, happier drinks um, for the wedding, but yeah, probably just some hard spirits. And then in terms of um, what we'll be doing on the day, I think we've organised a Zoom call with the bridal party, the groomsmen, and then closest family. And I've told everyone, if someone was supposed to give a reading or a speech at the wedding, they're going to have to do it on the Zoom ceremony. Obviously save their best stuff for over a year's time. Katie and Katrina, thanks very much. And that's all for this week. As ever, you can pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed on the episode, as well as more, including Rachel Johnson's diary, Simon Barnes on why we box and a lead book review by Ian Thompson. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. (laughs) 